Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, Cole shares his winding path in real estate private equity, from landing an analyst position in agriculture PE right out of Duke to pivoting to a commercial real estate acquisitions and dispositions role. He has always looked to make the move where he'll learn the most rather than chase the biggest paycheck. Learn what he's up to now in the midst of a major slowdown due to COVID-19. Enjoy. All right, Cole. Thanks so much for joining the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Good to good to be here, Patrick. Thanks for the invite. So it'd be great if you could just give the listeners a short summary of your bio. Yeah, absolutely. I am primarily based in commercial real estate uh, and have touched on buy side and sell side. Out of college, my first major role was as an analyst on an acquisitions team in agricultural uh, private equity, of all things. But that was a really great uh, learning experience. And from there, I moved to an internship working in a more traditional opco private equity startup where they were focusing on medical office primarily okay. uh, which is a really interesting niche we can touch on that later mm-hmm. uh, and then from there i moved over to uh, more traditional sell side uh, uh, analogous to bulge bracket in investment banking uh, sell side commercial real estate brokerage uh, sort of in-house back office analytical type work, as well as project management, property management. Uh, and then after that, I spent time as a land acquisition manager at a large national home builder in Raleigh. Uh, and finally, uh, I spent time recently working as a catch-all analyst to a private investor out of New York buying distressed retail property. Uh, and then most recently, I've been helping uh, uh, an entrepreneurial effort for for a brokerage firm in Raleigh as well. Uh, All of these experiences have basically uh, created a a commercial real estate focus for my my career. And that intersects sometimes with more traditional private equity and and sometimes it doesn't. Very cool. Love it. So let's go all the way back to Duke. And so you were a history major. (laughs) <laughs> my uh most common question asked uh why yeah. why real estate yeah um, so, so tell me well did you know early on was your family in it like freshman year sophomore year were you like i know i want to do commercial real estate or when did it when did it kind of pique your interest uh was it, it during college i assume it was an internship and it was an internship that i got uh interestingly enough via tutoring a uh, uh the son of the managing director who was later my boss and I basically asked him what he did. And if you've ever seen The Pursuit of Happiness with Will Smith, it was kind of like one of those. Uh, what do you do and how do you do it? And Super wealthy once, guy. You're just like, what do you even do? <laughs> no, sorry, he, go ahead. Well, you know, he, uh, he had done well for himself. Uh, however, uh, through that, you know, kind of investigative effort, he gave me a shot and I worked in a very, you know, traditional unpaid internship arrangement for a while. Mm-hmm. And that eventually converted to an opportunity after I got my license where I could earn some fee income and things like that. Uh, however, once I discovered the transactional nature and, and the, the real consequential nature of real estate in the sense that uh, there are no real arbitrary deadlines in a deal environment. It's all real. And that was really exciting for me. So that sort of led me down the path uh, of a career in commercial real estate. 
to me like it was just exciting like the the transactional nature of it like okay when are we going to close that type of stuff or just like the race both and and to be more precise uh when a deal is live and you are in the process of collecting diligence documents much much like banking i imagine mm -hmm. uh there is a a true deadline in the marketplace for bids to be submitted and you have to process those uh, but even before that stage you're just you're just under the gun to get get it done as quickly as you can and as ac accurately as you can and so that um, in a way really focuses your effort on what you're doing yeah just tell me a little bit about the the whole process of interviewing and like so you knew this is this interests you you said okay real estate interests me for sure Right. Um, coming out of Duke, we, did you ever think, hey, I should maybe do something besides history? Or did you say it doesn't matter, like, as long as I'm doing getting the right work experience, which you were um, on your resume, that's what really matters. And I, I'd agree with that. But tell me, like, what was your thought process going into kind of your senior year? Did you have a job lined up, all that good stuff? It was very much Wild West uh, rodeo. I did have some internship experience at uh, the commercial real estate uh, firm I mentioned, and then also at a London-based private uh, wealth management shop. However, uh, the history major, while it was great on the research side, most people, uh, when they look at your resume, as you know, know well, they go off of first impressions and they see history and they say, well, that's not real estate, that's not finance. Why are you here? And you have to overcome that hurdle. And there are elegant ways to do that. Oh, you know, every job requires research skills. Every job requires composition skills, you know. And down the road, once a hire has been made, hopefully, they see that. But in the interview stage, that's a harder, harder hurdle. Uh, and so that's why I would always emphasize at least get a minor or something in finance or real estate or civil engineering to show demonstrated interest if not through clubs and extracurricular efforts. That's good advice. So, okay, so you're, you're getting the right experience, you're getting the internships, you're able to start communicating, I guess, so a little bit of Wild West, meaning you didn't have like exactly a set plan coming into your senior year. Are your parents at this point? Fair. Are yeah. you, yeah, are you <laughs> nervous at this point? Is your, are your parents nervous? What was the thought process? Like, I know you, maybe you weren't on Wall Street Oasis panicking like everyone else who doesn't have an internship like freshman year. <laughs> but tell me about like, yeah, tell me about your thought process and your mindset, um, you know, back, back then, which wasn't that long ago. Was what, four sure, years? sure. Five no, years. yeah. Uh, when I stepped foot at the uh, spring job fair, the off-cycle job fair at Duke, which, you know, I really have to, to thank them for all the effort they go to to put that on. Mm -hmm. uh, having had that prior internship experience, there was a lot of confidence walking in there compared to other students who maybe didn't know what was on the other side of those, you know, um, those job booths. And you know, when I was able to communicate with with the firm that ended up hiring me out of college, they immediately knew that I'd done what they were doing before. And that was critical in securing an, opera, an offer. Uh, and so without the job fair, I think my search would have taken a different form. But given that it was there, I was able to find that ag private equity opportunity. And uh, once I got there, it was really, you know, despite being in Raleigh, there were guys working there that were formerly at Goldman Sachs, McKinsey, uh, Canadian Wheat Board, really, really sharp guys. And so outside of New York and San Francisco and these well-known finance hubs, uh, you can still get a secondary uh, secondary mentoring and education that's that's close. I won't say it's equal to it, but it's close to that if you pick the right group of, of people to work with. Great. And so you you kind of found this at the job fair. Tell me what the process was like. Did you have like three rounds? Was it intense? Was it more just casual and conversational um, and just more fit? And once they saw kind of you had the right um, experience, tell me what that was like. Sure, sure. So the job fair was fit, casual. Uh, however, the interview round following that was more like a super day, uh, sort of eight interviews straight through nonstop. Mm -hmm. Uh, a mix of technical and non-technical uh, questions throughout the day. I don't think that was intentional. Each interviewer has their own style. And so yeah. if you're being interviewed by somebody who really places a high premium on technical proficiency, uh, when you get that interview, 
then if you've prepared for it, you're going to feel good when it's finished. Uh, however, I, I found that that was probably about 20% of the questions that do I were, Do you most. remember what some of those technical questions were? Was it all real estate focused like, or just more general valuation corporate finance? Uh, one of them was evaluation in the sense of explain high level con conceptuality of, uh, you know, a discounted cash flow. Explain why you would uh, prefer using IRR versus equity multiple uh, to, you know, uh, evaluate an opportunity. Another was explain to me the the process of a sale lease back. A third example was explain to me how cap rate compression works. Mm -hmm. These are not rocket science questions, but if you haven't put in some time to study them and you haven't directly been exposed to them, they might trip you up in an interview. And so getting, getting uh, experience practicing those kinds of interview questions with people who do that day in and day out is really, my, in my opinion, the best way to prepare for it. Did you do any mock interviews leading up to this for job fair? I or did. Was it? Yeah, okay. I did, but mostly through friends and uh, former mm -hmm. colleagues. But and that yes, was help, I, I that was helpful, this. right? So this is this was. Did you do? Did you rush and do like quick like three or four mock interviews as soon as you heard you out of Super Day? <laughs> <laughs> it was more something that I, I probably did about two of them, uh, and I felt comfortable with uh, that level of practice because I'd already done an internship that exposed me to these concepts. Uh, yeah. Whereas if I'd never had the actual internship experience, I might have been. Um, I might have been more inclined to do closer to, to six to eight mock interviews, for example. Makes sense. So agricultural private equity, tell me what that is. Is it more the purchase of the, the land, I assume, and uh, be putting on debt like a traditional PE firm would and betting on the appreciation of it? Or are you making improvements to the land? I'd love to just hear just for the listeners too. All well. of the above. All yeah. of the above. Uh, okay. Agriculture is... Um, if it's it's an interesting niche because it's extremely complex and historically a low margin business, and so there were uh, there's debt involved. Generally, you can't get as much debt on an agricultural investment as you could on a more traditional uh, real estate investment. Mm -hmm. uh, however, most of these farms already had crop yielding. Uh, crop crops being yielded on them, and so the the question was not, does it produce you know value? It's how much is it producing, and can we do better with a different crop? So much like a tenant in a building, uh, you, when you purchase a new building, you want to examine if that's an efficient use of that space, highest and best use analysis. Mm -hmm. So and sometimes sometimes people even go so far as to explore the cost to uh, demolish the building and build something entirely new. Hmm. Oftentimes you buy raw land and figure out what you can plant successfully. And backing up this uh, acquisitions department, by the way, was an entire agronomy department, which was full of really uh, you know, very qualified experts helping us support the underwriting that eventually would lead to uh, the predictions on on future revenues. So can you uh, give me an example, like a type of deal that would go go through? Is it like a $10 million acquisition of, a, you know, X number of acre? Like just, just that would be. Yeah, sure. That would be uh, a minimum. We were typically looking at $20 million or higher in terms uh -huh. of allocating capital efficiently. Yep. Uh, any upwards of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of acres were purchased uh, mm -hmm. at, at a certain single time. And basically the goal was not to buy as much land as you could, but to buy a land that was as productive as it could be. And that included soil quality and it included uh, municipal politics. Oftentimes there were mm -hmm. limitations on what you could do with the land, future future land use that applies to, you know, regular commercial real estate, just as much as ag. Uh, water, water availability, riparian water rights were really big. And so, so this seems would, like a really cool job, a really oh, interesting was, job right out of school. Yeah. It was so, very, very cool. So tell me why it, it kind of was a little bit short-lived and why you ended up taking an intern, what, what seems like a step back going to an internship, um, you know, less than a year out. 
um, was mm-hmm. it something where they were restructuring or like, you know, restructuring the, the way it worked or was it something where you felt like you wanted to get into more the healthcare side? I'd love to hear like what your thought yeah. process was around that. I know I, I got fired six months into my first PE gig, so <laughs> no judgment if there's like just a restructuring because, you know, they basically cut us when I, I went there and got blindsided within, I think, four or five months. Mm-hmm. And it went from 20 down to four investment professionals. So I don't know if something similar happened there, but um, I'd love to hear a little bit about just like, because I see in your resume, you've, you have a couple long stops, but there's also a couple short hops. So I'd love to hear like mm-hmm. what your thought process was on uh, going to this uh, healthcare PE job. Yeah, sure. So the, the guiding philosophy behind every opportunity I've taken has been exposure. The money will come later uh, if that's something you're obsessed with. I We can get into that later, but I don't think that's the end all be all, but the exposure is is really key. And so acquisitions and, you know, historically I was angling for more traditional operating company style private equity roles. Real estate is uh, fascinating and I I always say boring people get bored and there's always something really cool and interesting to do in real estate. But if you're chasing, you know, private jet money, everybody knows that's kind of big traditional uh, private equity. And so the internship was sort of like a, uh, a downward lateral transfer, but into a, an opco style uh, underwriting role where I was, I had the opportunity to help value um, family medical practices for consolidation uh, in a more traditional opco private equity style role. And that's why I took that opportunity. Uh, Unfortunately, that company had its own slew of issues at the parent level, which I was unaware of at the time. And so in a way, I was very grateful it it did not get continued, but it was a really good exposure. And one of the biggest insights to me is that the methodology behind the underwriting of a real estate deal and a private equity deal is not wildly different from a theory standpoint. It's a Mm -hmm. discounted cash flow. And the question is, how precise are you getting? How granular are you getting in the projection of the future income and expense? And how much can you really, how, 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 accurately can you truly predict those things and you know the models in a leveraged buyout are quite complex but at that level for a family medical practice it was not uh, as complex as you might assume it would be it was just different formatting norms and different uh, different jargon but fundamentally is pretty similar and i assume a lot of these were relatively stable cash flow businesses since it was in medicine yes and uh, yeah, go ahead yeah so i guess um i think what you said was really interesting. There were some issues at the parent level and you didn't know about that when you made the jump. Tell me a little bit about at the ag PE fund when you were there and you were kind of starting to interview, were you starting to interview before you jumped and then this opportunity kind of presented itself and you're like, I got to take it because of this exposure. Like how did they sell it to you? How did they sell it to you such that you felt comfortable jumping? Sure. I guess uh, it was not a premeditated jump to a secure, you know, branch or, or what, whatever you want to call it. But um, the ag fund was in an interesting uh, tough spot because they had, and, and I'll touch on this allocation issue at the, uh, at the internship opportunity later, but they had um, a fair amount of capital they had for, for a Raleigh based fund. They had about $1.5 billion uh, to invest. Yep. And, they had these very strict limited partnership restrictions on what they could buy. And uh, if it was in a core group of, of agricultural investments that had been pre-approved, so they could be sort of rubber stamped uh, or this alternative asset bucket that was higher yielding, but had to be individually approved by all of the limited partners for each deal. Oh my gosh. And that is makes it almost impossible to win an open market bid because of the timing and the you know the price changes. Um, You're basically forced to only be in this one kind of sub segment of land type or crop type or something like that. Well, up to a point, and so yeah. you know they what they what they were wrangling with was trying to uh, achieve the carry carried interest that mm-hmm. they had promised their their limited partners uh, or themselves rather, and then yeah. also achieve the returns the preferred returns they'd promised uh, the limited partners. 
But when they hit their allocation limit for the alternative investments that were higher yielding specialty crops, they had to move towards a more uh, traditional staple crops, which of course their uh, larger investors invested in them precisely to fill that low yield, low risk bucket in their own portfolios. Right. So they don't and want so, doing all this alternative stuff. So they were limp there basically with all their LP agreements. They were they were marked and and kind of hamstrung. They couldn't really do that. So is that what led you to say, hey, the writing's on the wall, yes. the returns are gonna be, you know, pretty compressed here. Let me let me see. There there was significant deal flow during my in my first year there. And then just like that, it all stopped. I can't uh, believe you were like, well, did you have any sort of heads up or it was like the writing just it stopped and just the writing was on the wall? We allocated about $200 million very quickly, and we found some good deals to do that. Uh, And after that, the allocation had been reached, and unless they were going to amend the partnership agreement, that wasn't going to change soon. Um, They're still doing well, and they've managed to continue to operate a successful business, but I think they did have an internal shift into more operational uh, issues. And so they- Well, the uh, upside's gone. Right. And so (laughs) I was approached about helping them on the investor relations side. And I said, you know, I think you guys are doing really cool stuff here, but my goal is to build a career as an acquisitions professional. And so- at that point, I started looking, and then I found. How were you? How are you so savvy? Were you 22, 23 to know that you shouldn't just take that and to to start interviewing? Because I think a lot of kids would say, "Oh, well, this is a good salary." It was just obvious to you that, "Hey, I'm not, I'm not going to get the deals, and I want I want more than you know, eight months, nine months of of acquisition experience." <laughs> well, I you know, savvy is very flattering. I think <laughs> call it a gut feeling, but you know when something is changing based on an initial thesis. And as you get older in your career, you figure out uh, when the rug is starting to move under your feet a little bit. And I can imagine in this current environment, 2020, uh, most people, their uh, um, their spidey senses have improved to, to anticipate uh, internally when that's happening. And I, I've always said, the more exposure you can gain individually and the more value you can add to an organization, the less you have to fear uh, from being blindsided at your at your local company. But you never really get full transparency on how they're managing their business uh, or how much cash flow they have in reserve. Uh, and so sometimes things do come up and even the best prepared individuals will be surprised. Uh, so you just have to make sure that you are working hard and you have uh, really good experience so that you're, you're flexible if something should change. So, okay, so things changed. You start kind of interviewing actively or something kind of just came to you at the right time. I'd love to just hear about that and what, what your thought process was in, of accepting kind of the title even intern. Why didn't they give you the analyst title? I mean, you're not even doing it for which. Why did, why did they care about that? It seems odd to me. You know, I think. Was it uh, unpaid or something like that? No, no, it was paid, but yeah. uh, it was very informal. You know, I was working out of a, uh, it, it was kind of reminded me of what a, a San Francisco tech startup might feel like. I, yeah. I've never done that, but it was inside of a two bedroom apartment inside of a, uh, a mid-rise apartment building in downtown Raleigh with the pool on the roof. And so yeah. <laughs> it was, you know, cool because at lunch you could go upstairs and get a little tan and then come back down. Uh, <laughs> but uh the title was less important to me than the content of what I was working on. And, you know, a common theme throughout my career uh, has been taking roles that are going to give me that exposure to the product type and and the the type of analysis that I'm trying to get better at, Uh, not necessarily concerned with title or uh, compensation. Uh, Later, you can take that experience and you can leverage it. uh, And, if the market's not giving you what you think you're worth, then go out and start your own company, you know? Yeah. But, uh, so tell me, so tell me a little bit about that. So you went there, it was a short stint and then jumped to eventually a commercial, uh, real estate, private equity, another, another firm. But tell me about like that short stint, why you think it didn't work out and any lessons for the listeners? Sure. So that internship was, never a guaranteed full-time offer and that was understood going in and i did it anyway because it represented an opportunity to take a swing at more traditional uh 
operating company acquisitions. And even though it didn't pan out, I still have that experience. And mm -hmm. who knows down the road when that might come up. And, and if we're looking at a real estate deal with a medical office component, yep. it all it all goes together. Uh, and so that's why I took the opportunity. When it didn't convert, I was mentally and emotionally prepared for that. Uh, and I'd been continuously networking, which as an aside, I think that's critical, especially these days, is no matter how secure you think you are, continuously network and, and expand your network and talk to people from, uh, I would say, wherever you went to college, that's going to be the easiest uh, network to leverage. But beyond and that, you're just doing like LinkedIn and stuff like that, just continually getting meetups for people with people around Raleigh kind of thing. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the LinkedIn uh, cold, cold call, cold message mm -hmm. method. Um, and you know, this internship came to me as a, uh, I applied through LinkedIn and I went through a battery of personality and, and, uh, you know, IQ assessments. But um, beyond that, one of my favorite things to do is to travel to a city uh, outside of where I'm currently living for a week or so and stay with a friend. And LinkedIn message, as many Duke grads as I can find uh, a week prior to set up coffee or lunch. And then when I'm there, I've always been pleasantly surprised at the hit rate that I get. And all of them are willing to talk depending on how it's phrased. If you are if it sounds desperate, like you're looking for a job, they don't really want to want to share their knowledge with you. <laughs> but if you approach it as I'd love to learn more about what you do mm -hmm. and just kind of learn more about your professional history, everybody uh, likes to talk about themselves, myself included. <laughs> and so they will happily get coffee with you if that's how you phrase it. And yeah, it's huge. I mean, doing that, up. but doing that legwork, I think the hardest thing to get across the listeners and to any young people out there that are just starting out on their careers or maybe just have internships is that you have to do that before you need something. Yes. You have to do that before you need the job or else it's not genuine and everyone avoids you because, right. because all the seats are already filled. The relationships that you needed are too, it's too late to establish those. So I, I just, I just always implore people like, I have some mentees in this other program I call monkey to millions where I have, I mentor three other college kids trying to break into careers in finance and you know, they're in their internship and they're like heads down. And I'm like, are you still keeping up at least some sort of networking and outreach going? And oftentimes they're like, Oh, it's been slacking. I'm like, get on it. Yeah. That is the right. single most important determinant of, of where you're going to end up is who, you know. Absolutely. And I, I would add too. If ever an opportunity arises to do someone a favor for maybe they have a kid in high school or college that needs help studying for a test, it's something random. Yeah. Uh, it is always worthwhile in the long run to help out other people where you can, not because you're collecting a bunch of IOUs, but just because in the long term, that from my experience usually comes back to you. And even if it's, uh, you know, we talked about the pure networking play, but it, it, at, a, at a closer level between family and friends, um, if you share with people what you do and more importantly, what your goals are, you never know who they know. And so they will go tell those people. And then one day you'll get a message randomly about joining some random new startup for a pri closed private equity fund. And <laughs> you wonder how that happened. Well, it's no great mystery. It's because you've been putting in the legwork. Yeah. It's the same thing you spending the time here to talk with me today and share your story <laughs> and well, giving knowledge. I, it's you're sharing a lot, but you know, <laughs> that I'm sure it'll come back to you in, in, in multiple ways, just because there's people who will hear this and reach out to you. You'll get to know, you'll get become more networked, um, have better connections to other people in real estate. will be like, Oh, that I want to hire that guy <laughs> or what? Yeah. I have to say though, you know, I'm personally very passionate, probably like you, uh, about, um, mentoring and networking and helping other people achieve their goals. Mm -hmm. I've often reviewed resumes and helped people craft pitches uh, to get into their, their preferred companies for free mm -hmm. just because I enjoy doing it. Yeah. Uh, but that goes back long before any of this real estate stuff to a, a side gig uh, of, of private tutoring for the SAT for college applications. And it's very fulfilling. And if you can, channel that passion into something that's also lucrative, I think that's a win-win down the road. For sure.
For sure. Okay, so back to your story. Sure. So, <laughs> so um, you end up coming across, so the internship, it's kind of a, a relatively short sit, but you were prepared, you had been networking all along. Tell me how that next kind of role came in um, in the real estate, I'll call it real estate private equity role acquisitions and dispositions. Sure, yeah, so this is one of my favorite stories to tell. Um, I made the jump from this, this one month internship to a more traditional sell side real estate brokerage firm in mm -hmm. Raleigh and Excuse me. This is this is uh, a very dedicated kind of sales tactic, but it works. And asking for a warm introduction, just point blank. I reached out to an old roommate of mine who worked at this brokerage firm, but in Florida. And I said to him, I've identified a Duke grad who lives in Raleigh, who owns and operates uh, an affiliate office of your firm. Would you be willing to make a warm introduction on, on my behalf? And he said, you know, sure, I'll reach out to this other guy, unrelated, first, who was the head of Florida, you know, uh, for this company. And so I interviewed with him. Then he said, I'm going to reach out to the guy you asked to meet. And if he's interested, he will reach out to you. And so because of that initiative, I eventually did get a call from the local affiliate office owner. And that turned into a nearly three-year stint where I gained some of the most valuable operational real estate experience I've had to date. Uh, but it never would have happened if I didn't ask. And tell I me, think, when you say operational real estate experience, tell me, tell, tell the listeners, what does that mean? Like day-to-day, -day, what yeah. are you doing versus like a pure acquisitions? Sure. A acquisitions is very much the hunter model. You're, you're out for the kill. And when you come back, you're fat and happy for a while. And then it's back to the back to the grind. Um, operations, uh, that's strictly property management, project management, typically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and those roles, e even asset management, I could I could consider that operations to a certain extent. Uh, those roles are more consistent day to day. You are dealing with all of the headaches that nobody else wants to touch. Um, and so it makes sense to outsource them to a group of people who specialize in that. And through those, uh, through those headaches, you, you learn, you know, what the local fire codes are. You learn what the local ordinances are on, um, on exposed surface requirements for, for real estate developments. You learn, uh, you know, fire hour ratings for, for industrial walls, all, all of these random little things, they add up. And so when it does come time to go back and, and underwrite a deal for an acquisition, you have an incredibly strong grasp of the product type. Whereas, a, a, a you know, a rock star analyst out of name your top five, you know, undergrad finance program, they're going to be a whiz on Excel. And I'm sure they're very good at mental math but they're not going to have that understanding of the product. And so that's the real value of getting some exposure to property management early in your real estate career if you choose to do that. That's helpful. So tell me about this stint specifically then. So almost three years. Um, yeah. And yeah, tell me what was great about it and why do you feel like it was so valuable? I mean, you just kind of said it, but um, <laughs> specifically like uh, for you, uh, did you feel like you hit a wall at a certain point or did you feel like you were continually learning? I mean, getting oh, yeah, it was a continuous learning experience. And I think uh, the real value was exposure to institutional clients, such as, you know, a large industrial REIT was a primary client of ours. I was an account manager for 2.5 million square feet of their industrial assets in the, the triangle, the research triangle, mm -hmm. uh, which is if you're not familiar with North Carolina, that's basically Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill. Uh, and through that, I was able to gain insight into protocol at the larger institutional uh, buy side opera owner operators. Mm -hmm. uh, and in addition to that, I got a lot of great exposure to uh, a group of the federal government known as the General Services Administration, which uh, is short for you know the GSA. They are the go to for all federal real estate doesn't matter what department, every mm -hmm. single lease runs through the GSA. And so if you, and they have their own ways of evaluating rent payment. Uh, and so 
for a lot of people, it's a big black box and they avoid it like the plague. But if you can dive into that world and understand how to service, well, the federal government, mm-hmm. um, because they, they lease, uh, they lease space from private owners all the yep. time. And I don't think most people realize that that's, that's an option as an investor. Um, it's almost like buying a low risk bond. It's super you know, stable estate. tenant, right? <laughs> right. Yes. Very stable. Um, but you know, real estate can just and, print and, more cash if they run out. <laughs> there you go. Hey, Fed. No, uh, just kidding. Sorry. Go ahead. They, are, they don't care about the deficit, right? So it's, there's yeah. no def, there's no deficit concern. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> no, it was, you're you're not you're not uh, you're not far from it, and that's a really rewarding experience when you can find a solution in a highly bureaucratic environment because it makes everything else seem really easy by comparison. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's good kind of grit training, I'll call it, mm-hmm. uh, and. Uh, over over the years, you know, I as a result of being the property manager for some of these properties, I was given first bite at the apple to do the underwriting because no one else had uh, the revenue um, records uh, as easily. It was kind of like, uh, you know, people talk about disintermediation between companies, but even within companies, you know, typically an acquisitions analyst would solicit a property manager for all historical financials on a property and then they would do the underwriting. Well, if you can do the underwriting and you know the building, they're going to say, why don't you do it if you want to as a sort of extra thing. And then before you know it, you've got extra, extra experience under your But tell me how about like, so when you say the underwriting, this is because you're trying to like dispose of the asset at this point or they're trying to. It was a combination of um, uh, company owned, private owned uh, assets that we were servicing as a property manager and then third party clients. So the owner of the firm had a private portfolio. And if one of those assets was up for sale, that's when this underwriting would really, um, happen from a, in a sense of like the side job or the job within a job. Um, And so the underwriting happening, the underwriting being where you need somebody to underwrite it to provide the debt or to somebody to, to write the check to, to, for the acquisition, the equity side or the, well, the debt was already, you know, in place these were owned assets, right? Yeah. So the okay. debt was there. It was more to um, double check the numbers and the evaluation from uh, against the buyer's underwriting because there are norms in the industry about how that's done. And, it's a classic um, haggling fest between the buyer and the seller about, oh, we want in place, you know, 12 months trailing in or in place, um, you know, pro forma rent. And then um, the seller will often prefer a model that, that projects rent if a lease is, is renewed or signed. Uh, but buyers don't like it unless the ink is dry on the lease. And so everyone does their own underwriting. They come to the table. Uh, but you want an expert in the product and the building to be so when, able to when you say it. underwriting, that's almost like the, the valuation process of valuation. Got yeah. it. Okay. Sorry. So like there's just different terms. People use it differently yep. at banks and versus real estate. So that helps for, for, yeah, it's not Lloyd's of London sign under the line insurance underwriting. It's, it's, yeah. uh, it's real estate valuation. Got so. it. Okay. So perfect. So you're going through that. You're kind of getting these, you're getting both, you're not just the property manager, you're doing some underwriting on the side as well. Mm-hmm. Tell me kind of what was next for you? Did you, after a few years, did you think, hey, you know, this has been great, but uh, I'd like more? Or like what, what was kind of the next stage for you? Sure. So I was courted about a year in um, at this brokerage uh, in Raleigh by a national home builder. And I actually turned them down. I said, it's a little too early. I'm, I'm still learning a lot here and I have a lot of extra value to provide, um, but let's stay in touch. And so about a year later, they came back and, and interview processes these days are very long at large companies, sometimes up to six, six to eight months, which, you know, mm. I have my own opinions about that, but that's the reality that I've experienced. Yeah. And so that process began again about a year later. And the short answer is that they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. And it was an opportunity to move out of the back office and kind of into the front office where you are uh, developing new client relationships and uh, particularly for it, it's, it's, it was a land acquisition role. And so at that point, I made a decision to take the leap 
Uh, and you joked earlier that you'd been let go within six months from a, a company you joined. Well, that happened to me at the land acquisition role. <laughs> and it was due largely to COVID-19, but also mm -hmm. to uh, some local management uh, practices. And um, shortly thereafter, the entire land department was dissolved. Uh, and before so, we get to that, before we get yeah, to that, yeah. I want to hear a little bit about um, the actual role. And yeah, sure. um, jumping from commercial real estate to residential, and then specifically, when you say front office, that means you were specifically uh, tasked with, um, so like where the, the actual home builders were acquiring the land themselves. And so you were tasked with going out, finding that land, negotiating yes. it, doing everything. Yes. So okay. it was more similar to a commercial uh, land. To, it was, you know, every commercial real estate brokerage firm has a land practice group. This was the buy side equivalent of that in-house at a in developer. Sounds like, it sounds awesome. Yeah, it was, it was <laughs> great experience because I get to, I'd get to drive around and scout land in the day and come back and, you know, make some phone calls in the evening to uh, the owners after doing some research. And occasionally you, you get through and, you know, they, I will say in general, are weary of national home builders, but occasionally you get people that really do, um, see see it as the right time to, to sell their land and mm -hmm. at that point you get to underwrite uh or value the land based on its future profitability after you've built homes on it so this was very different from commercial where they wanted to see in place noi net operating income yep uh the home builder in-house almost didn't care they didn't care because they said what's it going to be what's it, what are the homes going to sell for did you close any deal? Were there any acquisitions done during that time or no? A, a typical land deal takes closer to 18 Either. months yeah. to <laughs> get through to fruition. Um, so no, but we got very close to getting a couple deals under contract and sadly um, things started to change. One thing that's really critical in residential land acquisition is understanding how much runway is left in the county or the municipality for um, water and sewer infrastructure. And that's why I stressed earlier that getting some knowledge of civil engineering is really not a bad use of time as an undergraduate if you're going to do real estate, mm -hmm. because you're going to have a, a look around the corner from a developer's standpoint as to where there's actual uh, actual low-hanging fruit um, to do projects. Because just because a piece of land is empty doesn't mean uh, 20 other people haven't already looked at it to try and do something. And they're not sharing their notes with you. So you have to go through the process all over again. So tell me a little bit about that. What do, you, what do you mean, like in terms of being able to know that there's still a long kind of useful life on, the, on, on that stuff? Like maybe it was replaced 10 years ago or something like that? Well, I guess what I'm referring to more so is uh, the the available capacity in Got water it. and sewer systems uh, that are servicing that standpoint. that that property that could potentially service mm -hmm. that area. Got it. Because you can, build yeah, it you can find the land. You can you can get it at a at a reasonable price, but if you can't build it. Um, if you, if you can't get permission from the city to, to build it based on the existing water and sewer, they're going to ask you to put in your own sewer system. And so that's been the recurring bottleneck in real estate development, at least in this metro. Some metros are really proactive about that, and they mm -hmm. invest in that. But here, private development has, um, has basically outpaced uh, municipal investment in, in sewer infrastructure. And so that's kind of an interesting side, uh, side piece. No, that's a lot interesting. Like, yeah, yeah. That's really cool. Uh, but so, uh, what, what so, else? So, yeah. So I think, uh, so it's interesting because you, you kind of got this offer. You couldn't refuse. You took it. It ended up kind of not backfiring, but ended up not working out like me. You just, well, yours is more related, I think just to the economy and COVID, right? where they just completely eliminated your group. Any thoughts about going back to the previous firm? And what was your thought process of maybe not doing that? Were they also struggling and just said, sorry, like we just, there's no room now? Across or? the board, everyone yeah. was struggling, still struggling. And yeah. I got creative and I reached out to a former client um, at the sell side brokerage and I offered to work for free again because I recognized the severity of the market situation and determined that if I took a took a swing for the fences, um, 
this individual might be be compelled to give me a shot. So I just, you know, at the time I was unemployed. And so I just volunteered my time. I did research. I, I connected this investor with um, this is an, a New York based investor. Uh, and, you know, he buys distressed property. And so mm-hmm. after about perfect timing. Two, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. That was my, my, my thesis. Cause I knew yeah. he did that. And so I called him and after about three weeks of that, uh, an opportunity presented itself from a project management standpoint. And if you spent your entire career refusing to do anything besides pure acquisitions or in investment banking, you know, perf- uh, you know, uh, pure, pure M&A deal work, um, I wouldn't have had the skill set to to service this need for the project manager that that he had. And he said, I'll pay you to do this. And on the side, you can help me with these other distressed acquisitions. Uh, these are big, awesome, big, uh, re, re, uh, spinoffs that are struggling, you know, malls um, in other states. And I had the opportunity to work with a, a guy that I'll call, um, you know, a, a Gordon Gecko type, just a real smart, sharp investor, uh, runs a lean operation. Mm-hmm. But I got to be Bud Fox for like three months. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So you helped him actually make a few acquisitions or you were just, you, you were doing property management for him for a little while and then he moved on. Project management. And then I helped him with some diligence work in the middle. And that was really rewarding. And uh, I'll always be able to, to have that experience. Um, but inevitably the uh, project concluded and we moved our separate ways. Like I said, he does like to keep a lean operation. And so mm-hmm. the immediate need evaporated uh, as is so common in today's marketplace. Uh, and so currently, you know, I'm, I'm helping a local entrepreneur with her uh, startup brokerage business. And that has been very rewarding as well. You know, just fig- taking all of the past experience and, and helping, um, partner with her and, and leveraging her network in, in the, uh, in the market and my experience in property management, project management, underwriting, uh, to, to help create a compelling kind of lean brokerage business, which is really exciting. That's cool. Let, really back quickly to the other, the, the guy yeah, you did sure. the project with, tell me a little bit about, um, did you ever try pitching him on um, some sort of work for free with some upside around finder's fees if you were able to find distressed properties for him? Or does he not like to deal with it? No, that was huge. Uh, Initially, we were talking about some um, pretty pretty compelling incentives for performance. Uh, It was based on referral fees for finding good deals. Uh, it was based on potentially saving money on project costs. Um, we were even discussing equity in future investments, but that was all hypothetical upon, you know, that, that current, um, that current operation. And so as it turned out, uh, it didn't pan out, but had it, had it lasted longer and had the market been slightly more stable, it's mm. kind of a catch 22 because if the market were, were more stable, his deal flow probably would have been lower. <laughs> yeah. But as a result, yeah, I think, I think one thing I've learned in real estate is that when people uh, find a niche and they get good at it, they realize that the more people they bring on board and they share equity with that, well, it dilutes, it dilutes their holdings. And so yeah. People have gotten smart in outsourcing uh, as as much as they can, and I don't blame them. If I were if I were them, I'd probably do something similar. Um, but if you're on the other side of that, you have to recognize that's where they're coming from and find yeah. a way to add value long enough to to gain their trust and to potentially join them as a partner at some point down the road. Uh, but everybody takes a different path, so. That's great. Yeah. And it's a good lesson. I think uh, it's actually really interesting just hearing a little bit about um, the jumps and the, the experience, the well-rounded experience you've had, obviously all real estate related, but just really touched on a lot of different areas, property management, residential, commercial acquisitions, disposition. You've really in a pretty short amount of time, I've hit a, hit a lot, uh, which is, it's, it's probably going to serve you well because you can, <laughs> Yeah, it can serve you well, right? So, uh, unfortunately, yeah. it's it's a pretty brutal market for real estate right now. Um. <laughs> but you know what? 
uh, there's always somebody out there waiting for that good deal. And there are still people out there looking for, for good property to buy, uh, particularly in the multifamily sector. There's mm -hmm. still uh, enormous demand for that. Uh, it's been upwards of a decade. It's been like that. Everybody's saying, oh, it's, it's overheated. It's overheated. <laughs> At this point, all you can do is just kind of, there, there's a really famous quote. I think you've heard it. It's, uh, the market's ability to stay irrational it can, is longer than your ability to stay liquid or, or something right, like that. Right, right, yeah. Um, so at, this, at a certain point, you, you realize some, some investments do have maybe more legs under them than people had thought before. Mm -hmm. uh, so you just have to find out who's buying and who has the war chest to uh, keep the staff uh, afloat during this, this very awkward market period. That's great. So before we call the pod, anything else you'd like to share to the younger listeners as they kind of embark on their career, anything, um, any takeaways just based on your own experience that you want to, that I didn't hit on? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the biggest one would have to be around, um, finding new opportunities. Uh, there is enormous respect for go-getters out there among founders and uh, company owners. And if you sometimes take a risk and take an unconventional approach, don't make a fool of yourself, but really demonstrate passion, that goes a really long way. Can and, you give an example uh, of that? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Uh, I think like are you saying like walk out with a sign on yourself like those people who like go into <laughs> Wall Street saying I'll work for whatever uh, not like not quite I think um, I think a, a good example is you know that story from the beginning of the podcast where I was telling you how I was tutoring a managing director's son and asking him how he did what he did that uh, unpaid internship that I, I volunteered for telling that story to the, the, the folks that were interviewing me out of college um, was what won, uh, won them over. And they were so impressed by that story that they, you know, decided to, to hire me. And there were many other people applying for that role. And so things like that, or even just uh, being willing to stay in touch um, over a multi-year period, once every three months, just keep an Excel file of the people that you are trying to stay in touch with. Uh, that demonstrates consistency and commitment, um, and and people really reward that behavior. I've found. I can't can't agree with that more, man. It's uh, it's hard to find people who who are hungry, who are willing to be consistent, who can put in the time and 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 be a real asset to to the team at. I know I have a great team behind me at WSO and I think uh, it hasn't always been easy to find those people. So um, for sure. I second that. So to all you hustlers out there, keep grinding. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anyways, thanks so much Cole for, for taking the time and sharing your story. Um, yeah. Let me know if I can be helpful at all. Thanks so much for having me, Patrick. All right, man. Stay in touch. And thanks to you, my listeners at wall street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.